All right, we are continuing our study through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians here on the Listener's Commentary. And the Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of listeners just like you. So if you're one of those who support this ministry from the bottom of my heart, let me just say a huge thank you. You're having an impact on people all around the world because of your generous support. So thanks a ton for that. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com, click the Give button, and it'll take you to a page where you can set up a monthly recurring donation or a one-time gift. Just put in the amount, click the checked box that says make this a monthly donation. You'll be all set up and ready to go. And that will actually be received in partnership with an organization called World Family Mission, a registered nonprofit. So thanks a ton for your support. All right, in this recording, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 19. Really, chapter 14 is one long discussion of specific instructions on the church gathering as it pertains specifically to speaking in tongues and prophecy and some of that. But it would take too long to be one recording. So we're going to split it into two and take chapter 14 in two pieces. So this recording, will look at the first half of the chapter. Next recording, we'll look at the second half of the chapter. But it all goes together as Paul's specific advice and specific instructions on this topic of spiritual gifts, specifically tongues and prophecy here in chapter 14. And as Paul's pattern really has been throughout this letter, Paul would raise a topic, give general instructions related to that topic, and then finally get very specific. So that's what he's done here with this issue of the gifts. And this gifts Sometimes are spiritual matters or spiritual gifts. Sometimes it's grace gifts. And then the word spiritual sometimes used for the people themselves. We'll see that at the end of chapter 14 here because it all went together. There were people who were using their gifts in a way to promote their own superior spirituality. And so in chapter 12, by way of general principles, Paul had said, no, diversity is necessary in the church. Diversity is important in the church. And what you need is not everybody to be the same and have the same gift. You need the diversity, and then you need everyone to work together in unity with those gifts. So that was the first general bit of instruction, chapter 12. Then chapter 13, we said, was really kind of like the the primary bit of his prescription, the meat in the middle, and, and it was the superiority and preeminence of love as the true mark of spiritual maturity and thus the proper motivation for and the proper context of the use of the spiritual gifts. So now here, after those general instructions in chapters 12 and 13 on this topic, Paul is ready to give his very specific instructions. And as we read through chapter 14, the instructions make it very clear that speaking in tongues was really the lion's part of the problem in Corinth. It was being treated as if, at least by some, as if it was the greatest gift and that those who spoke in tongues were the most spiritual or, or something like that. That's what's going on in the church. And as Paul addresses this topic, he's focused on the large group gathering, when the whole church gathers together. And so his instructions here are for the large group gathering, and it revolves around two primary concerns. Uh, that the message in the large group gathering needs to be understandable to everybody and beneficial to everybody, understandable. And then his other concern is order. So we need understandable and order. And so 
this chapter, as Paul gives his instructions, is going to revolve around those two things. First half is really focused on understandability. Second half is focused more on order. And again, keep in mind that we're talking about the large group gathering, the, the scene of what we might call a church service. Now, in their context, it was in the context of a home, and it included a meal, and so it was more free-flowing than what we think of as a church service. But that's the scene. The whole church is gathered together. And in that context, as you picture that scene, Paul says in 14 verse 1, pursue love. Right, Based on what he just said in chapter 13, that love is the more excellent way. Love is the priority. It's the superior way from the end of chapter 12. So pursue love. Yet, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So as he now begins to narrow down his focus on specific instructions, Paul doesn't want to completely squelch their zeal for the gifts. He has given them a demotion. He wants those gifts to be used in a way that's subordinate to love. He wants them to realize that the true mark of spiritual maturity is loving God and loving people the way Jesus does, right? But he doesn't want to completely squelch their zeal for the gifts. And that word translated earnestly desired literally is be zealous for, right? Be zealous for spiritual things, but especially that you may prophesy. And the reason for that is because of the value of prophecy for the entire church, and that's what love thinks about. So Paul goes on to explain why he wants them to prioritize prophecy over speaking in tongues, and it has to do with being understandable. Look what he says in verse 2. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Speaking in tongues was being able to speak in an actual foreign language, not just some babbling, not just some made-up language. It was an actual foreign language uh, that could have been understandable. That'll become very clear in this chapter. The two primary chapters in the Bible that help us maybe get a more full picture of what speaking in tongues was and how it operated are Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. And in Acts chapter 2... We're talking about the story of the church beginning on the day of Pentecost. And what happens there in the first 10 or 11 verses is you have people from all over the Roman Empire in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost. And as the apostles begin to speak of what God has done in Jesus and all the mighty works of God in and through Jesus, the people present are amazed that they're actually able to hear them speaking in their own native tongue, that is, in their own native language, from their homeland, where, wherever they're from. And it lists off some of the places they're from in Acts chapter 2. And so it becomes very clear that speaking in tongues is actual foreign languages. The same is true here in 1 Corinthians. Paul uses both the word tongue and language interchangeably in this chapter to describe what he's referring to. And in the second half of the chapter that we'll look at in the next recording, Paul actually quotes an Old Testament text about foreign languages, specifically about the Assyrian language from the Old Testament, to describe what he's referring to. And so it's being able to speak in actual foreign languages. And since it's a spiritual gift, that seems to suggest that it was a an ability to speak a foreign language that you had not learned, like miraculously enabled to speak some language that was unknown to the speaker because he had never particularly learned it, but now you've been gifted with this ability. That's not explicit, but that seems like the way it works 
in Acts chapter 2 as well as here in 1 Corinthians. So what Paul says here in verse 2 when he says, the one who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to people but to God because no one understands, but in a spirit he speaks mystery. What he's saying is, if you're in a church service, a large church gathering, and someone speaks in a foreign language that all the people there don't know, well, no one's going to understand what was said. Only God will understand. That's what it means when it says he doesn't speak to people, but to God. God's the only one who actually understands the language. No one else does. To everyone else, he's speaking in mysteries. Now, I'm sure even if we've never experienced a foreign worship service where we didn't know the language, we can all kind of imagine that experience. Like, what would it be like to be there and hear a message in a language we didn't understand. That's Paul's concern here. When I was teaching in Haiti a handful of years ago at, at a pastor's conference, there were 90 pastors there. Only a very small handful of them, just four or five, knew English. So for me to stand up and teach in English was useless to them. God knew what I was saying, but to them, it was a mystery, right? And that's why there had to be a translator because I didn't know Creole and they didn't know English and we needed a translator. That's the scene Paul pictures here in verse two. And that's why Paul wants them to prioritize prophecy. Prophecy is greater and better in the church gathering because it's understandable. Look at verse three. He says, but the one who prophesies speaks to people for edification, exhortation, and consolation. You speak to people because you speak their language. That means in Corinth, you'd be speaking Greek and everyone would understand what you said and it would build up the whole church. They would all be edified. That word edification is the same word translated build up in chapter eight, where it says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. They're edified. That's what love does. Love seeks to build up other people. It's concerned with other people. So when you prophesy, you're not in a foreign language. You're speaking the language everyone knows, and thus everyone benefits from it. So now, Paul is capable of contrasting tongue speaking and prophecy very succinctly, and he does so in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. The one who prophesies edifies the church. A very succinct summary of what he just said in verses 2 and 3. To speak in a foreign language in a church service does not build up anyone at all except for the speaker. And I even wonder if there's maybe a hint of sarcasm in Paul saying that. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He makes himself feel good. He makes himself look good. He's assuming that everyone thinks, wow, look how spiritual he is. I wonder if there's a hint of sarcasm there. But either way, the point is clear. To prophesy builds up the whole church because everyone understands what the prophet has to say. And so now Paul emphasizes the point. Verse 5, now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but rather that you would prophesy. In chapter 12, Paul already said that not everyone prophesies and not everyone speaks in tongue. So everyone has different gifts. That was the point of chapter 12. So when we get to verse five, we have to realize this is rhetoric to make a point. You love speaking in tongues so much? Great, wish you all did that. But you know what really would be even better? That everyone would prophesy. And so this is rhetoric to drive home this point that prophecy is superior because it's understandable. And so Paul goes on in the rest of verse 5 and says, And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, 
unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. In other words, if one's going to speak in an unknown foreign language in the church gathering, then he should interpret, that is, translate what he said. That's what interpret means here. Like, translate it into the language everyone else knows so that the whole church may be built up, may be edified. In fact, in verse 28 of chapter 14, Paul's going to be very explicit. He's going to say, if there's no translator, then just keep silent because it doesn't do anybody any good. Uh, in fact, verse 13, just a little bit later, we'll get to it here shortly, Paul will instruct the one who speaks in the tongue to pray that God would enable him to actually translate what he says so that the whole church will be built up. That's Paul's primary concern. Is it understandable and thus beneficial to the whole church? Paul continues in verse 6 by saying, But now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will it benefit you? Unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching. Like speaking in tongues isn't going to do you a whole lot of good because it's a language you don't understand, right? And if I translate it and if it provides a real message from God, a revelation or a knowledge or a prophecy or a teaching, that's a real beneficial message from God. If I do that and I speak in a foreign language and it provides that kind of message from God and I translate it, then it's valuable. But if I don't, if I just speak in a foreign language, how will it benefit you? It's not going to benefit you at all. And again, the point is, is that speaking in tongues in the gathering of the church really isn't that valuable or helpful unless, of course, you're going to translate it. And unless, of course, there's an actual beneficial message from God. Then Paul gives an analogy. He says, yet, even lifeless instruments, whether a flute or a harp, in the producing of a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? For if a trumpet produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? In other words, even musical instruments have to play actual notes and have to play actual songs with those notes or no one's going to understand the song, right? A trumpet that issues a battle call will do no good if the one playing it doesn't actually play the battle cry song. And so, that's the analogy. Look at verse 9. He makes the point. So you too, unless you produce intelligible speech by the tongue, how will it be known what is speaking? You'll just be talking into the air. So if you speak in tongues and it's not intelligible, that is, it's not understandable, you're just talking to the air. It does no one any good. Then he says in verse 10, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and none is incapable of meaning. Like there are a lot of different human languages. There are a lot of different foreign languages in the world. All of them have meaning. So if I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be unintelligible to the one who speaks, and the one who speaks will be unintelligible to me. Again, Paul's just making it super clear for us what he's talking about and what the problem is. If, if I go and have a conversation with somebody who doesn't speak English, they're not going to understand a word I say to them. And when they talk back to me, I'm not going to understand a word they say to me. It's unintelligible. It's not under, uh, understandable. And that's the problem. The people of the church don't know whatever language you're speaking in when you speak in tongues. And thus, even if the speaker has a legitimate message from God, it does no one any good. 
Now, one technical little detail here in verses 10 and 11, that word unintelligible in verse 11 is literally, in Greek, barbaros. It's the word we get our English word barbarian from. But in their culture, that meant somebody you could not communicate with, a foreigner who did not know even Greek. Since Greek was the international trade language of the day, a someone who couldn't speak Greek and thus couldn't communicate with you was a barbaros, a barbarian. That is, somebody who was uh, incapable of communicating with you. And that's Paul's point. The word barbaros, barbarian, was actually a little bit of a kind of a pejorative term, a ridiculing term in the Greco-Roman Empire to say those ignorant uh, foreigners up there who don't even know Greek that we can't communicate with. And so Paul, there's a little bit of a, a jab towards those who are making such a big deal out of speaking in tongues in the church. And he's like, you're, you're like a barbarian. You're like one of those people when you do this. And so you think it's such a great thing, but guess what? You're just like a foreigner who can't even communicate with people because you don't even know how to do it. So he says, so you too, since you're eager to possess spiritual gifts, here's what you should do. Strive to excel for the edification of the church. That's the big principle. And it's based on love. This is how love ought to play out in the context of the church gathering concerning these knowledge gifts of tongue and prophecy. You ought to strive to excel, not for your own benefit, not for your own appearance, not to make everyone think how spiritual you are. You ought to strive to excel for the good of the whole church, that the whole church should be built up and edified. And what does that mean as far as speaking in tongues is concerned? Well, it means that if there's no translation, then there's no benefit, not even a benefit to the speaker, interestingly enough, because remember, he's got this gift. He may not even necessarily understand the language he's speaking. And so there's no benefit, possibly not even a benefit to the speaker. Look at verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. If someone there in Corinth has this gift of speaking in a language they've never learned, then they should, then he or she should pray that God would enable them to actually understand the language so they can translate it uh, for their own sake and for the sake of the entire church, the whole gathered church. What if you can speak in a tongue but not translate? Well, listen, look what Paul says in verse 14 and following. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. In other words, if you say a prayer in the gathering out loud in a different language and you can't translate it and you don't know what it means, not only does it do no one else in the church good, it doesn't do you any good either. By virtue of the gift, you've prayed something, something to God, right? But your own mind doesn't even understand or reap any benefit from what you've said. So your mind is unproductive. So Paul asks, what then? Verse 15, literally, what then? This translation says, what is the outcome? But literally, it's what therefore, or what then? Like, what good is that? What should I do? Paul says, I will pray with the spirit, but I will pray with the mind also. In other words, it needs to be understandable. Pray with the mind means if I'm going to pray out loud in the church gathering, then I need to pray in an intelligible, understandable sort of way. I will sing in the spirit, and I will sing with the mind. In other words, it needs to be understandable. So whether I pray, whether I sing, singing in a foreign language, praying in a foreign language that isn't translated, isn't understandable, doesn't do anybody any good. So Paul says, if it were me, here's what I would want. I would actually want to use my mind, not just 
some unknown language that comes from my spirit that I don't understand, no one else understands. In fact, Paul feels so strongly about this that as I've already said, he mentions later in the chapter, in verse 28, that if there is no translator, then just don't talk. Just don't pray out loud. Just don't sing that song. Just, right? It's not going to do anybody any good. So he, he continues and says in verse 16, For otherwise, if you bless God in the Spirit only, meaning by the Spirit with this foreign language, how will the one who occupies the place of the outsider know to say the amen at your giving of thanks since he doesn't understand what you're saying? For you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not benefited. He's not edified. Key phrase there in this little section is the phrase place of the outsider. It literally, it's place of the idiot. The Greek word for outside, it's translated outsider is uh, idiotes, which means idiot. But it doesn't mean idiot as the English word means it. It means the unlearned or the unformed, those not in the know. Um, he's going to talk about unbelievers in the second half of the chapter. Here, I'm not so sure if he's talking about unbelievers. It seems like maybe it's people who are new to church. They don't understand what's going on, and they don't know the language. How, how are they going to be able to join in and say amen? Like, you've prayed and blessed God for sure, but they don't have a clue. Like, they don't know this language, and that seems to be the key. Like, the outsider, the one who does not know this language and doesn't know what's going on, how are they actually going to join in the service? And so Paul now wraps up the first half of this chapter by saying, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. It's not that it's a bad thing. It's a useful gift. It's, Paul's grateful for it. Nevertheless, in church, that means in the church gathering, when everyone's together, I prefer to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. In other words, Paul says, I would rather speak just five words, five understandable words. That's what he means when he says five words with my mind. When you read that in what he's just said, I would rather just speak five understandable words than 10,000 words in a foreign language that no one understands or gets. And all of this serves to, again, demote speaking in tongues. The Corinthians had this overinflated view of it. They were misusing it in the church. We'll actually see uh, in the second half of the chapter some of the ways they were misusing it. And Paul will get very specific with what he wants them to do with it. Uh, but they're misusing it. In fact, the primary place for speaking in tongues wasn't the church service. That, that wasn't what it was originally meant for. Paul's not going to forbid them from using it there, but he's going to give very specific instructions for how they're going to do it if they use it there. And all of that will come up in the second half of the chapter. But here, all of what he has said has served to demote speaking in tongues because it's just not really that helpful. So quit making such a big deal about it. Now, in the second section that we'll get to in the next recording, Paul will get very, very specific with what he wants them to do.